When you think of best-selling Mexican-American authors, you think Sandra Cisneros, Luis Rodriguez, Reina Grande, but only one such writer has ever had three nonfiction books on the New York Times bestseller list. And his main focus isn't the Chicano experience. Shea Serrano is beloved in the sports, movie, and music world for his wickedly funny essays and podcasts on everything from Selena to the Houston Texans, Jay-Z to Jason from Friday the 13th. And yet his journalism is probably the least impressive part of the guy who's probably the nicest chola nerd in the world. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Monday, October 25th, 2021. Today, we're hanging out with Shay. His latest book, Hip Hop and Other Things, is dropping tomorrow, October 26th. We'll talk about Shay's unlikely entry into journalism, why Mexicans are perfect, why representation matters, and why he pays for the utility bills and college classes of fans without question, again and again. I still remember the first time I heard about Shay Serrano. It was 2012. He wrote a story called Here are the songs they play at a middle school dance that I republished for the Orange County newspaper I edited at the time. And it was brilliant. Yeah, Shay talked about the music, but he was talking about race, class conflict, being a Mexican in Texas, even teenage neck tattoos. Shay was a junior high school teacher in Houston. They call it middle school in Texas at the time, but he blew up after that. He began to freelance for GQ and ESPN, then became a best-selling author. And today he's a staff writer and podcast host for sports and pop culture website, The Ringer. And how many Hollywood projects do you have now, Shay? <laughs> uh, a couple, a couple in, that are in development. <laughs> he's he's going to be a freaking mogul in a couple of years. Just watch. What's up, man? Welcome to The Times. Thank you. That's my favorite introduction I've ever gotten. I just think it's so awesome and amazing. You know, your career that you're a New York Times bestselling author multiple times, a place like that. It's not meant for people like you, straight up blue collar San Antonio kid. So what or who taught you to be a storyteller when you were growing up? I think it was just like an extension of being a teacher. Honestly, I did that for nine years. And the whole point of being a teacher or like the, the the main objective is to take some information and make it digestible for somebody else. Here's what I need you to know by the end of the day. And you're basically doing the same thing as a writer. It's just you don't have like the teaks or objectives to follow that you do when you're a teacher. So it's like if I'm writing an article, here's the thing I need you to know by the end of the article. And then by the end of the article, hopefully I've I've done that because it's essentially the same skill set. And I had all of that time when I was teaching to, to practice it, you know? So you don't have one of those Chicano origin stories. Oh, I had this steel who would give these big, huge spiels about <laughs> riding with Pancho Villa back in the Mexican revolution or Abuelita who just sat us all 55 of us down and just told the stories about Porfirio Diaz or something. No, 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 no. We didn't, we didn't have the storyteller in my family. Damn. You're like one of three Latino families don't have it. <laughs> You know, you're so you're teaching at you know in Houston, but did you ever think you were going to be a writer though? Because you got a psychology degree in college, then you work construction for a bit, then the whole middle school teacher thing. That's not really the career path most working journalists have, you know. That's like not a thing that they tell you you can do when you grow up uh, in South San Antonio. They're like, hey, you want to do uh, irrigation installation with your uncle, or do you want to like lay tile with your other uncle, or do you want to paint houses with your other uncle? Like that's the thing. You want to work at the tire shop with your other uncle? Like, that's those are the jobs they tell you about. 
And so I had no idea that that was even a thing until I got into this spot where I needed some extra money and I, I couldn't get a part-time job because I already had a full-time job. So like the ones I was applying for were telling me I couldn't work when they needed me to work. I kept getting turned down. So I was just straight up Googling work from home jobs. Writer was one of them. And I started reading about it and I said, well, this sounds like pretty, like a pretty great thing to do for money. Just like tell people what you feel about a thing. I could do that. So I just started trying to, to chase that down, you know? What would have been the other like work option in 2012? Cause Uber still wasn't a thing. So what, what could you have possibly ended up if Google told you otherwise? If there was no writer thing on there, I, what I probably would have ended up doing is some sort of like construction stuff again, like on the weekends. You know what I'm saying? I was teaching and coaching. So from like 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., my day was locked up. So it was going to have to be something on the weekend more than likely. Yeah, but you broke through, man. You started with small newspapers in Houston. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> then you got with Bill Simmons, a kingmaker in sports journalism world. You started his original website, Grantland, then went with him where to the ringer where you're at today. How often do you still trip out that you went from teacher to the heights that you're at in just like a decade? I think about it pretty much every day. I especially think about it at certain points during the school year because you still like feel it a little bit. Like when, when summer's ending, you start to feel it like pulling back or from like Thanksgiving to Christmas time. That's a really fun time of being a teacher or the end of the school year is a really fun time or like football season or whatever. I think about it a bunch. I miss teaching a bunch as well. You know, that's part of it. You should still be a substitute teacher, you know? They just I, I think about that all the time. I want to do it so bad, like so bad. <laughs> At this point, they'll probably put a camera on you, say like, oh, let's do a Shea Serrano a substitute teacher show. That would be great. Uh, that would be miserable because the kids don't care. They don't care at all. When my first like three years of being a teacher, two or three years, they just like kicked the shit out of me over and over again because you don't know. The kids are so much smarter than you when you walk into that classroom. Uh, they run every scam, every trick on you. They, you just get beat up for two, three years, and it's great. It's so much fun. They would do the same thing to me now because I, I've been out of teaching for five years now. So if I went back today, it would take me another two years before I felt like I like had my feet under me, you know? It, but I think that would be also such a humbling experience. It's like to remind you, ground you, like no matter what heights you come, walk into a classroom, you're already getting clowned nonstop. Immediately. They immediately <laughs> start making fun of me. And it would be the best thing. It would be so much fun. We'll have more after this break. Shea, for me, the classic Shea Serrano writing move, it reminds me of Ice Cube's It Was a Good Day, that line, you fool around and you get a triple-double. <laughs> and my favorite example is the essay you wrote earlier this year for The Ringer. It's supposed to be about former San Antonio Spurs legend Tim Duncan getting inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. He's a big hero of yours. But nearly the entire damn thing is about your dad driving a bus for over 30 years. In San Antonio, there's a... The metro bus system is called Via. He worked there for 33, almost 34 years. That's all that I, I knew him as. But yeah, that's that's what happened in the article. And to me, it's brilliant because you're you're thinking it's going to be one thing, but it's quite another, and yet both end up meeting at the end. So where did you get, you know, you, you said earlier that you learned how to write by teaching, by summing up points, but where did you get that specific style? That's just a, a matter of practice. You know, if you go out on the basketball court enough times, you start to develop your own little moves or things that help you hopefully be successful. 
But when I go play basketball in San Antonio, I'm 5'7", so I'm like pretty tall in San Antonio. <laughs> I'm a power forward in San Antonio. I'm leading the league in rebounds in San Antonio, right? But then when I like left and I lived in Houston, that wasn't the case anymore. Or when I was like, if I went to LA, everybody in LA is like six foot two. You have to play a whole different type of basketball out there. So you just like learn these little like layup package tricks or whatever. Um, it's the same thing in writing. Like there's some stuff that I'm not good at and there's some stuff that I am good at. And so I just try to stay in the neighborhood of stuff that I am good at there. Um, and that just is, again, you know, 10 years of practice or so of trying things and you see, oh, this doesn't work. That does work. Okay, cool. Let me try this. Let me try that. You know? So, so are you more Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili or uh, Tim Duncan? Oh, I, I, I don't, I don't imagine I'm any of those ones. I'm more like a, <laughs> I'm more like a Vinny Del Negro. You remember Vinny Del Negro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course I do, man. Wildly inefficient player, barely hung on in the league, uh, never was an all-star. That's about where I am. That's how I feel. Ever humble. You're five tools all the way, man. And, you know, but you write these essays, which everyone loves. They always go viral. But in the journalism world nowadays, people keep telling us, hey, no one wants to read long things. Everyone just wants to listen to stuff. So why do you keep doing books and essays when you also have so many other avenues out there and projects? It feels more natural to me. I feel like I do better in text-based scenarios because you have a longer time to to think about something. Like if I'm writing uh, an essay or an article or a book chapter, I can take as much time as I want with it and I can research every single piece of it. So when I put it out, it is fully informed and sharpened. If I'm doing a podcast, you're probably going to ask me a question here that I'm not prepared for and I'm going to stumble a bit and I'm going to sound dumb. You know what I'm saying? I feel much more comfortable with writing stuff down because I get to spend whatever amount of time I want on it before I send it out into the world. Another thing I really like about writing is like when you write a thing or when you read a thing, your brain like forms all of the pictures in your head. You get to decide exactly what it looks like. And I like the idea of me writing like a, let's say I write a little story. I wrote a, a little thing the other day where I was talking about playing basketball with one of my sons who's 14. He's the same height as I am now. He's gotten He's better than I am at basketball now. So I was talking about that. And I get to like tell that story and somebody will read it and they will like build it all out in their own brain. And it's going to look perfect to them. It's going to look exactly how they want it to look because they're the ones in charge of that picture. I'm just providing the text. I, I really like that part of it. Yeah, you say that right now. I'm already imagining me facing off against my brother when he was, what was it, 10 years old. He's already my height at 10 years old. I'm 5'9", and he's backing up at me, backing up at me. And then he does one of those uh, neck jerks back and just smash, broke my nose. And I'm like, okay, I'm done. Game over. I'm never going to play <laughs> basketball with you yeah, again. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason that people um, who do respond to any of the stuff that I write, like that's why they respond to it. And that's sort of the like intention of it. Like with the book, for example, the new book, Hip Hop and Other Things, you have you have 252 pages or whatever to like write about all the stuff you want to write about. And there's no way you can cover every single thing. That's not the point of doing a book. The point of doing a book, at least the ones that I work on, are I want to write about something that I like in a way that makes you think about something that you like. It doesn't even have to be that same thing. But like I tell a story about this thing happening to me and in your head you go, 
that I remember when this a version of that happened to me. And then you feel good remembering that story. Like that's what I'm trying to do in um, in in the in the books or in any other writing, really. So you're now a three times New York Times bestselling author, probably going to be a four time with hip hop and other things. You're probably the second most bestselling Mexican-American author right now. Do you know who's first? Uh, Sandra Cisneros. Nope, not even close, man. Really? No way. But her books are all through like in every school in America. I have to imagine Mango Street has sold a billion copies. I wish and I would hope. But the number one right now, Diana Gabaldon. Really? Do you know who she is? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, though, did the Outlander fantasy series that got turned into that cool star show, like time-traveling British nurse falls in love with a Scottish warrior. A Chicana from Arizona wrote that stuff, man. I had no idea. That's cool. Over 25 million copies sold of all of her books. So That's awesome. Yeah, no, we're talking about huge, worldwide, uh, translating to like, a bunch of languages. So what does it say when two of the top selling Chicano authors in the United States don't write exclusively about the Mexican-American experience? It probably says that you don't have to only write about that thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so I have this conversation, a bunch, a version of this conversation. Like if I'm in a, you mentioned some Hollywood stuff. If I'm in a room and I'm pitching a thing, uh, there's always a point because you're almost always pitching it to only white people. And there's always a point where you like finish telling the story idea and then they start asking questions and they're like, okay, but like, where's the scene where they talk about being Mexican in America? Like, that's got to be so hard. And I'm just sitting there and I have to tell them like, that's not how it works when you're like, there's never been a time in my life when me and my family were sitting at the dinner table talking about what it's like to be Mexican in America. Because what that does is that that means you're centering whiteness here, like being American, that's another version of them saying what being white. And so if I'm like, that's not what we do. Like you don't, it doesn't work like that. You don't talk about the thing because you're always the thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We'll be back after this break. Jay, so why do you think there's not more Latinos in the world that you now work in with books? I mean, a recent survey shows we only make up 6% of the U.S. book publishing industry and only 3% of the industry's executives, even though we're about, what, 20-some percent of the population now in the United States? I think we just didn't know about it for so long. Most of us still don't know about it. We started the race late. We're trying to get in there. You know, the Internet has sort of democratized everything. It's making it a little bit easier. You know, it's especially helpful when people who are us are like in leadership positions. There's like a, a common language there already. But, you know, we're just a little late to the game, but we're on the way, baby. We're catching up. You're one of the important ones, man. Just right there, again, being on that New York Times bestseller list. But also, I would say, because you're advocating, you're, you're starting scholarship funds for Latinos to get into journalism. You're, at, you know, you're prepping up like people who need that chance. Why is it important for you to change that? So much of the the stuff that I do is like, me just trying to get back the feeling of what it was like being a teacher. Because when you're walking to that classroom every single day, you have the chance to like do a meaningful thing every single day. And you can watch it happen in real time and you can feel it in your chest when it happens. And so like I, I miss that part because writing, you don't really get that if you're just like writing and making your jokes or whatever. Writing is great for my ego 
because people are telling me all of the time, oh, you're so funny, you're so great, this and that. But, it, but it's not as good for my heart as teaching was. Nobody cared that I was a teacher, but I felt better about myself. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think any of this stuff that I'm doing outside of writing that's like trying to help others is like selfishly, it's just me trying to get that feeling back again. I still think, though, man, the most powerful Latino advocacy you do is when you'll tweet or say online or say somewhere, you'll say, quote, Mexicans are perfect. Yeah, and it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what it is. My favorite <laughs> my favorite example is when you tweeted out a picture of a plate of enchiladas Tex-Mex style, which they're delicious, but the rest of the world is like, oh, gosh, disgusting. <laughs> All this gravy and yellow cheese. And then in that picture, there's also a bottle of Big Red, which is like this cult soda from Texas. And then the caption, Mexicans are perfect. So where did Mexicans are perfect come from? And why are we perfect? The very first time I did it, it was because it was like a food-related thing. I just sat down and was looking at this plate of food. I think I had been like on the road for a while, a couple of weeks, and I got back home and I went to like a Blanco Cafe in San Antonio. They're the best enchiladas I've ever had in my life. But I got those enchiladas and the beans and the rice and the soda and the chips and the salsa. And I just had it all in front of me and I was so happy to be there eating this $4 plate of food again. And that's just what I felt. I just felt like I knew the Mexicans made it. They made the, the food. So I tweeted the picture out and then it just became like this, this long running thing. I've been doing it for, for several years now. My favorite thing about it, my absolute favorite thing about it is that Mexicans get so mad. They get so mad when I post a picture of Tex-Mex food. They are just livid, livid. They hate it. And then it becomes this big argument and it just makes me laugh every single time. But it's fine. You know, like that's a that's the thing we can all argue about amongst ourselves. We've been doing it for a billion years and we'll do it for a billion more. It's like when you go home and your cousins make fun of you and you're like, they're only doing this because they're my cousins and we, we all love each other. And like, this is sort of how this relationship is. It's all love. But then you'll say something like Mexicans are perfect. You say in opposition to say Trump or all these, you know, xenophobes going after Mexicans. It's this really profound statement that it, it's like Chicano pride that we haven't felt in a while. And you just sum it up in three words. It just sort of encompasses everything. You just say those three words and that's it. It's beautiful, man. If people want to get the real you, that's where they should be following you on Twitter. You have over 426,000 followers. It's pure id you. Pictures of your twins and your wife or you just flip off the camera just, just for the hell of it. But which is it's just like you'll just drop it like nothing. I always crack up. I, I don't think Jonathan Franzen or uh, Dom DeLillo are doing that, you know, but you also have something called the FOH Army. What's that? Oh, uh, that's this goofy, like a uh, guerrilla philanthropy thing that started up several years ago, completely as a joke. So much of this stuff was just like it starts as a joke and then it becomes this this whole thing. The way that that worked was when I was working at Grantland, and this was 2015, I signed like a contract to work there for a year. I signed a contract in July and October of that same year, three months later, they shut it down. They're like, hey, guess what? Everybody's fired. But I had a contract for a year, so they had to pay me out for the year. So I had like seven or eight months of, of like, I don't have to do any work. And I thought it was going to be great. But like two weeks into it, I was really bored and just wanted to do stuff. So I started this newsletter and it was me and Arturo Torres who illustrates all the books. Over the course of a couple of weeks, we had like 30,000 subscribers to it. It was this whole big thing. But we were doing it for free uh, just because we felt like doing it. But because there were so many people who were subscribing to it, they kept asking if they could like, you know, donate money. And so one day after like we got tired of saying we don't need the money, we put a donation button in there. And then people donated money to it. And it was like, well, what the f do we do now? Like, 
I don't want this. Do you do you want this? Arturo? We took the money. We donated it to uh, the Genesis Women's Shelter, which is in Dallas, Texas. And it's a place where Arturo, his mother and his brothers lived for a while. Like they gave him his first art supplies and it's just like a meaningful place to him. So we sent them the money and then we told everybody what we did. Ha ha ha. You dummies. You gave us this. We gave it here. And like as a joke, like a couple months later, we did it again. And then people were asking immediately, like, oh, where are you donating at this time? And it just became like a thing we were associated with. So we we're like, I guess we're going to donate it again. And then we just kept on doing it. And it started out small. That The first time we did it, it was like 2700 bucks or something like that. Uh, but by this point, like by now today, it's been like, you know, $600,000 that we've donated to various places. It's crazy, dude. No, that, and that's where I think is the best you because you're brilliant. Everyone should read you, listen to you, but you're giving out money like a reverse Scrooge McDuck, man. Like 600000 you know, you. I remember there was a hurricane. Your fans raised over 100000 just a couple of days for hurricane victims. And then people just hit you up randomly. Hey, man, I need 50 bucks. I need $500 to pay my cell phone bill or this, whatever. And not only do you make it happen, you post the receipts, like proof. You're like, you're not just saying it to say it. You said earlier, like part of that comes from you being a, formerly being a teacher and you want to feel that, like making that difference in someone's day for that. But really, where, where does that come from? Because I don't see many other writers or reporters who do it at your level so consistently or, or most people, period. I honestly think that's what it is. It's just I miss that feeling from being a teacher, from like helping out. We should be like very clear here, though. It wasn't $600,000 of like my own money. It always starts out with a little bit for me and then everybody else jumps in with, you know, five or 10 bucks here or there. But yeah, it's just like, I suppose a little bit of part of it is that. A part of it is like we grew up poor. We lived poor for a long time. And so I know very specifically what it feels like to get that yellow envelope and then the pink envelope. And you're like, I got to pay this or else it's going to get cut off. But I don't have the money for it yet. And trying to balance all of those things. Like, I remember what that was like. Last question, because, yeah, that's right. You got a book coming out tomorrow called Hip Hop and Other Things. So what's it about? And what do you tell people on Twitter if they don't buy it? As the title states, it's about hip hop and also some some other things. I do a lot of the things that we talked about here where we start with one subject. And then by the time you get to the end of it, you realize maybe it was about something else. Uh, but the, the structure of the book is very simple. It's 32 chapters. And every chapter in the book is a different question that needs to be answered. And here's an example. The very first chapter in the book is about Jay-Z. I wanted to write about Jay-Z in there because Jay-Z is the greatest rapper of all time. But I didn't just want to write a chapter about how Jay-Z is the greatest rapper of all time. I wanted to do something different. So I went through, I re-listened to all of his tapes, all of his albums, everything I could find. And I noticed that he does this thing every so often where he would just like let some stray shots off at somebody. Totally just they were minding their own business and he says their name in a song as a way to like express a negative thing. The easiest example here is when he had the infidelity between him and Beyonce and they had the like fight in the elevator with her sister and it became this whole thing. And then he puts out the album 444 as a response to Beyonce's Lemonade, which was her, you know, her response to the situation. And in the like, I think it's the first song, if I'm not mistaken. In the opening song of the album, or early on in the album, he's talking about it, and he says, "Never go, Eric Benet." And this is a this is a reference to how Eric Benet cheated on Halle Berry, and then they end up getting divorced. And so he's like saying, "Never do that." And Eric Benet was just at home that night, minding his business, 
And then here comes Jay-Z calling him out for this thing. Like, that's a stray shot. And Jay-Z has done that a ton of times in his music. So I just wanted to go through, like, let me find all of those times and, like, write about that. And there you go. Like, that's what the, the first chapter is. But also it's about this whole other thing as well. Uh, but that's how the book works. It's 32 of those types of things connected by, like, a single theme throughout the book. Shay, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, you're the best. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, sailors stuck at sea with nowhere to go, yeah, that's their day-to-day life. But COVID-19 has made this lonely reality a months-long ordeal for seafarers trying to enter the U.S. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Alan Zarembo. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this matter. Gracias.